All right, so we are back in the book of Kings, 1 Kings. This morning we have been working our way through uh, these two books together for a few weeks now, and this, this is the eighth week, so if you're, this is your first time, uh, this is kind of generally what we do. We, sometimes we don't do this and we'll do like topical things, but mostly this is kind of what we do. And um, so we've been looking at the life of Rehoboam and Jeroboam. Now to remind you, these, they're, 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 they're not brothers, uh, they're just two people named very similar names, okay? And it can get confusing. Rehoboam is the son of Solomon, and he's king initially, and then he blows it like everyone else does, and and loses it, loses the throne, sort of, to Jeroboam. And this is part of why it's confusing, is Rehoboam doesn't just immediately fade into the background. He stays around. So we have these two guys, both kings in Israel, okay? But they're different. Jeroboam was originally an enemy of the family. Uh, he, he was a problem for Solomon and Jer- Rehoboam, all right? And then God gives the kingdom, most of the kingdom, to Jeroboam, their enemy, as a judgment, okay? And so those are the two characters we see. And to make things more confusing, we'll be introduced to a couple of prophets who have no names, okay? So I'll try to help you navigate all that um, this morning. Okay, so after Rehoboam's foolish and sinful refusal to lighten the yoke his father had put on the people, that was last week, Jeroboam and the people rebelled against King Rehoboam, okay? Rehoboam was mean to them, just like his dad. Jeroboam leads a revolt, and the country is divided into two kingdoms, okay? The two kingdoms are Israel to the north and Judah to the south. So from this point forward, this also can be confusing if you don't know that this has happened, because the paragraph where this happens in 1 Kings, you can miss this completely when you read it, okay? That's what's happened, is from here forward, when you see the word Israel, it's referring to the northern kingdom, okay? And when you see the name Judah, it's referring to the south, southern kingdom, right? It's not, so Israel doesn't mean the same thing anymore. It means a smaller piece of what you used to think of Israel, all right? Everybody with me so far? All right. So Rehoboam was in the south with the tribe of Judah, as well as most of the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin got hit hard. It sort of falls apart. Um, and in the north was the remaining ten tribes plus whatever was left of Benjamin, all right? So the north is much bigger. It's got the ten tribes. It's much more, has much more land. You can look at a map and see that. Um, much more land, much more people, much more wealth. And the south was somewhat decimated, but they come back pretty quick, all right? Um, so they were primarily divided, at least initially, by their loyalty to their respective kings, which sounds suddenly very relevant, doesn't it? They were just like, well, my guy is Rehoboam. Like, he's the, he's the real king. He's, he's the true son of Solomon. He's in David's line. He's the one. He's the guy. And he has, he has some flaws, but I, he's, the, he's the real king, Right? And we just gotta we gotta have faith in him. And then Jeroboam is sort of the rebel leader who comes in and says, you know, down with the establishment, right? And you know, maybe has some good slogans about out with the old, in with the new kind of stuff. And he's the hero of the people, and those people follow him. And now the country is divided in half 
based on their loyalty to one of those two kings. Who says the Bible isn't relevant? It's, I mean, I, I just kind of feel like we could almost stop there and just say, well, it's nice to know that nothing has changed, right? And that our loyalties are kind of silly on the, from a perspective of history. So ultimately, we need to remember that this is God's doing. We looked at that last week. Let's look, it says it again here in chapter 12, verse 24. It says, Thus says the Lord, you shall not go up or fight against your relatives, the people of Israel. Every man return to his home, for this thing is from me. So they listened to the word of the Lord and went home again according to the word of the Lord. So a prophet stops a civil war, at least for a minute. Because they're just about to fight. And he says, go home. Go home to your tents because, not because we should all get along, not because of any of the other good reasons not to have a civil war, but because this thing is from me. That's what God says. So Jeroboam immediately becomes worried that if the people go to Solomon's temple to worship Yahweh, then they will ret- they'll turn their loyalty back to Rehoboam, and he will no longer be king. So if you remember, Jeroboam is told by a prophet, by God himself, I'm going to take the kingdom away from Rehoboam because he's worshiping idols, and I'm going to give it to you, right? And then Jeroboam says, okay, sure, sounds good to me. I'd love to be king. And he goes on, and God does exactly what he said he would do. He confirms his word to Jeroboam by doing what he said he would do. And immediately, Jeroboam becomes completely insecure about all of that. And he starts to worry. You know, if these people start worshiping Yahweh back in the temple, it's going to be familiar to them. It's going to, they're going to remember all the promises of God about the line of David and how it's going to, God is not going to, you know, there will always be a king on the throne from David. And they might return back to Rehoboam and start worshiping with him instead of with me, and I'll lose what I have. And so his really, really, really foolish answer to that problem is right here in chapter 12, verse 28. So the king, that's King Jeroboam, took counsel and made two calves of gold. (laughs) And he said to the people, you have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Jerusalem meaning to the temple in Jerusalem that Solomon built. He says, Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. What? Who brought them out of Egypt? Yahweh did. He's the one that parted the sea, who fed them in the desert, and there was a pillar of fire and the cloud of the presence of God leading them through the desert. He's the one that sent Moses and all the plagues. That whole thing was from God. And here Jeroboam gives all the credit to all of that to these false lower G gods and says, Behold, these are the gods that really brought you out of Egypt. Verse 29, And he set one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. They're like kind of the north and the south, conveniently located worship centers. Then this thing became a sin, for the people went as far as Dan to be before one. He also made temples on high places and appointed priests from among all the people who were not of the Levites. And Jeroboam appointed a feast on the 15th day of the eighth month, 
like the feast that was in Judah. And he offered sacrifices on the altar. So he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he had made. And he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places that he had made. So not only has he encouraged like Solomon did and paid for and funded idol worship, but now he has institutionalized it. He has put it into law. He has built places where they are to go to worship. He has built temples, and he has gathered up priests from among the people and and trained them in whatever false god worship looks like. And now this is their job. They are appointed to those temples to worship these false gods. He's recruited, he's passed into law, and he has created systems to keep it going 24-7. Jeroboam knew exactly why God had removed Rehoboam. His idol worship. He knew all of this. Just like Solomon, just like Rehoboam, they all knew what God had said. Follow me, follow my ways, don't worship false gods. I'll bless you and keep you on the throne and you'll prosper. If you don't do that, I will tear this whole thing down. And they consistently don't do that. He has seen those examples, and he's had the prophet himself, the same guy who told him God's going to take the kingdom from Rehoboam and give it to you, also told him the same promise. Remember that? If you, he gave him the same instructions as everybody else. And Jeroboam, when he gets afraid and worried about whether or not God's going to be faithful, he just goes immediately to idol worship. Disappointing. He did not trust God to follow through on his promise. He was taking things into his own hands. If you notice there in that first sentence, he says he took counsel, and whoever he took counsel from was not God. And he believed what they said. He was taking things into his own hands, listening to the counsel of men instead of the word of God. His doubt in God's faithfulness led him to his idolatry. He had to hold on to what he had, this this power and this wealth and this influence and this position and the, the, the celebrity of it all. Whatever it was that fed him made him feel like he had to hold on to it and it was his to hold and that God was not going to be faithful to keep it, give, keep it in his hand. And so he turns and he starts Making golden calves. Isn't that always the story? (laughs) Then we have this wild story. Um, Somebody's got to make a movie out of this. Of these two prophets. The first one is called, just simply called a man of God. And there's lots of conjecture about who he was. I think not knowing who he was is part of the point, okay? He's just simply referred to as a man of God. This is chapter 13. So an unnamed prophet, simply referred to as a man of God, is sent by God to confront Jeroboam, because Jeroboam is now himself leading the, the worship and the sacrifices on the, uh, these temples he's built. He's at one of the altars preparing to make a sacrifice to a false god, right? He's got the knife in his hand or whatever, and he's about to do the thing. When this prophet sort of dramatically sneaks up on him, it's a great little scene where He's just doing his thing, and it's like his guy just sneaks, comes out of the woods behind him and starts yelling. But he doesn't yell at Jeroboam. He points at the altar he's about to sacrifice on, and he starts cursing it and prophesying to it. 
He declares that Jeroboam will not receive the blessing that God promised because Jeroboam has not been faithful to God. So God is removing the promise from Jeroboam. The prophet also declares that God will raise up another king named Josiah. This is amazing because Josiah was a real king, but he doesn't come to almost 300 years after this. And what he says is Josiah is going to come and he's going to tear down these altars, but he's not just going to tear them down. He's not just going to bring a sledgehammer. He's going to take the priests that are making false worship to false gods on these altars, and he's going to sacrifice them on the altar first. And then he's going to tear down the altar, and all the ashes will spill down onto the ground. It's kind of intense. King Jeroboam, you know, is surprised, and he points at the prophet, and he says, Seize him! And what happens to Jeroboam when he points at the prophet and says, seize him, his arm dries up and shrivels up and freezes in place because it says he can't pull his arm back in. He's just shriveled up, can't move his arm, and he's pointing at this guy, and now he's freaked out. And so he begins to beg the prophet, the man of God, to pray to God that my arm will be fixed. So the prophet says, all right. And he prays to God that his arm will be fixed and his arm is immediately restored. Now you would think at this point Jeroboam would fall on his knees and begin to worship God and tear down the altars himself and, and repent and turn the nation back because he is, God has sent a prophet who's now been verified he is a prophet. And God has, maybe if we repent, God will remove this curse from us. No, instead, Jeroboam tries to wine and dine the prophet and gain some manipulative control over him by saying, come to my house. Stay a while. Eat, drink. Enjoy all that I have as a king, right? I, I need this guy on my team. I need guy, this guy on my, my board of elders, <laughs> right? You know, I, I don't need somebody cursing me. I need, I need this kind of power in my hands. Thankfully, well, he says, let's look at uh, chapter 13, verse 7. It says, And the king said to the man of God, Come home with me and refresh yourself, and I will give you a reward. And the man of God said to the king, If you give me half your house, I will not go in with you. And I will not eat bread or drink water in this place. For so was it commanded me by the word of the Lord, saying, You shall neither eat bread nor drink water nor return by the way that you came. So he went another way and did not return by the way that he came to Bethel. So God had seen this coming, and he told the prophet specifically not only what to say, but he said, and then I don't want you to eat or drink or anything in that place. And when you leave, don't leave by the way you came. Leave a different way. At this point, a third important character enters the story because the, prophet, the man of God leaves. Now we have a certain old prophet, Right? He's even more mysterious than the first guy. I still don't understand this guy. I don't know what motivated him. It's really interesting. An old prophet hears of the exploits of the man from, of God from his sons and ride off, rise off to find them. Apparently, this old prophet had been sitting there grousing about all this idol worship. He's not happy about it. But God doesn't give him a word or send him in and tell him what to do. He sends this other guy, and he's, he seems happy about 
what the man of God has done. He's like, well, at last somebody's rebuked the king for all this stuff. And so he goes out to meet him on the road. And he meets the man of God and invites him to a meal. This just sounds like something out of a movie to me. He just invites him and says, hey, you know, you should come over, you know, you should come over for a meal. Again, the man of God refuses to eat because what did God tell him? Don't eat or drink. Go in, say the thing, leave a different way. That's all I want you to do. And he says, no, God told me not to. Repeating God's clear instructions, just like he did with Jeroboam or Rehoboam. Oddly enough, the old prophet lies to the man of God. I don't know why. He lies to him and says, an angel came to me. He said, oh, it's not a problem. An angel came to me and told me that you were supposed to come over and eat and drink. And the, and the man of God just believes him. And he goes with him over to his house. And they're sitting at this dinner table with the old man, the old prophet, and his family and sons. And he eats and he drinks. And the old man starts spontaneously prophesying, shouting at the dinner table, almost as if he has no control over himself. And he shouts, and he tells him um, that God's going to kill him, that he disobeyed God, and God's going to take your life. And so the man of God knows it's true. He knows he's right. He, he's just found out he's been lied to. And he gets up and he leaves, and on his riding his donkey down the road, a lion comes out and kills him. The lion doesn't touch him or the donkey, which is fascinating. It just frightens the donkey, so it throws the man of God onto the road where he dies. He's found later by the sons of the old man dead in the road with the donkey and the lion sitting next to his body. That's wild. Without a scratch on him or the donkey. Just dead in the road. So this man of God prophet, right? He 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 says what God tells him to say, but he doesn't do what God told him to do. He he obeys God in the in the what we would think of I did the important stuff. I did the main thing which is go and just dramatic, crazy dramatic confrontation at, this, at the site of this false idol worship, this wicked demonic worship of false gods, attributing God's miracles to false gods. He has this dramatic confrontation, and it, it works. It, it works. He did what he was supposed to do, and he just fails to obey God on the way out the door. And now he's, his life is over. Verse 33 says, After this thing, Jeroboam did not turn away from his evil way. It's amazing. But made priests to the high places again from among all the people. Any who would, he ordained to be priests of the high places. And this thing became sin to the house of Jeroboam so as to cut it off and destroy it from the face of the earth. So what can we glean from this? I mean, the first most obvious one is but just do what God says. <laughs> right? Just, just do what he says. But here we have the example of a king and a prophet 
both getting clear, unmistakable instructions from God. For the king, it was, I'm going to make you king because this other king doesn't obey me. If you will obey me and do the stuff I tell you to do, then I will bless you. And if you don't, I'll take it away from you. For the old prophet, it was confront the king who is not doing what I told him to do. And then I want you to not eat or drink, and I don't want you to go leave the way you came. Those are the instructions. Very clear, unmistakable instructions. And then they both doubt it to the point of completely discarding it and trusting their own wisdom instead. They trust the word of someone else who sounds reasonable to them. And God, what God said to them doesn't sound reasonable to them. And this other person, whether it's the counsel of their friends or it's the counsel of an old man prophet, whatever it is, they believe the counsel of someone else over what God clearly and unmistakably told them to start with. They both make the same mistake. In Genesis 3, this is the primary tactic of the serpent if you recall. God puts man and woman in the garden and he gives them clear, unmistakable instructions. This whole place is yours. It's for you to enjoy and to steward and live in and be happy and hang out with me. It's a wonderful thing that I have provided for you. But there's one thing you can't do is eat of this tree. Don't do this one thing. Sounds pretty easy to do. But there's something in our nature that just wants. And so the serpent comes along and he says, hey, the first words out of his mouth, did God really say? Did God really say Eve? And of course he misquotes God. She corrects him. And he does the same basic thing. Accuses God of not being faithful to his word. Well, God's holding out on you. Maybe he did say that. But did he really mean it? Maybe he did say that, but maybe he's not being honest with you. Maybe he's holding out on you. Maybe the reason he doesn't want you to touch that thing is because that's the best thing. And he doesn't want you to have the best thing. He's holding out. He's not really good. He's not really faithful. He's not going to be faithful to what he promised you. He's tricking you or lying to you or being deceitful. This is always the tactic of the devil. It is, and it touches something in our nature that wants to be in control and wants to be king. Wants to have all the power for ourselves. It doesn't want to submit to anyone. So we're no different than Eve and Adam and Jeroboam and the unnamed prophet. It's easy to walk your way through these verses and go, what idiots? I mean, and they are. They're just, I mean, there's just no other way to put it. I mean, talk about not learning like, you have had example after example after example inside your family, outside your family of don't worship idols. I mean, you think at some point just in the, in the undertaking of fashioning a golden calf, at some point in that process, which was not a few minutes, it was a process of finding the gold, melting down the gold, shape, doing the whole thing. At some point, someone would say, you know what, I think maybe we shouldn't do this. This feels a little bit like the Israelites back in the beginning 
when Moses goes up on the mountain to meet with God and get the Ten Commandments, and he comes back and he says, you know, one of these rules is don't worship graven images. And they're like, you mean like like this one? <laughs> we just made it, you know, just drop it. Right? They didn't learn. But we're not really that different. We have the clear word of God in our hand. It's sitting here on my podium. It's like clear, unmistakable, the word of God. I know there's some parts of this that are not clear. But if 99% of it is pretty clear. Now, you may not like all of it. It may. It may not be, it may be out of sync with the world around you and the prevailing wisdom and the counsel you receive from the world that says this is what should matter to you and this is what shouldn't. This is how you should live your life. This is how you shouldn't live your life. It may be in conflict with your instinct of what's right and wrong and what's good and bad and what you should think and what you shouldn't. It may run against what you feel and what you think and you may question whether or not you should believe it. But what you can't say is it's not clear. It is. What God thinks and what God says is clear. We also have the Spirit of Christ that dwells within us if you're a Christian. Not only do you have his word written down, he says, look, I'll just write it down for you. I know you're going to forget it, so let me just write it down for you. It's great. It's great for me. But you also have the Spirit of Christ dwelling within you. He has affirmed his word to us in countless ways, just like he did for Jeroboam and this prophet. He says something, and then he confirms it for you because he knows your faith is weak. You want to know that what the prophecy I've given you is true when you say it, and the king's arm shrivels up. And you go, oh, that's kind of wild. Must, that word must have been from God. I think I'll pray and see if God will undo it, and he does it. You think at that point, you'd be pretty locked in. Yet so often when the pressure is on us, we question his word and his faithfulness and lean into some form of idolatry. We start forming and shaping a golden calf to rescue us. Almost without fail, the problem in your life is not a lack of clarity about what God says. Almost never. It's usually just an unwillingness to trust him when the stakes are high. See, God says something to you in the light that is clear and unmistakable. He shows you in his word. He speaks to you. He leads you. He confirms himself to you. I'm faithful. I'm good. I'm paying attention to you. I'm leading you in the light. When the pressure's off and things are good and God seems clear and then the darkness comes and the pressure comes on and it's like the sky grows dark and the clouds come in and you're not sure if you can hear God anymore and you begin to doubt in the dark what he told you in the light. And that's always the test for every one of us. Is will I believe God in the dark? It's easy when it's light out. When you're full of faith and you're in the middle of a good sermon or a good worship time or you're surrounded by friends or you're in that small group meeting and everybody seems gung-ho and you feel the goosebumps and that great worship song's on or whatever it is, you're like, yeah! going to take this hill for Jesus. But then the darkness comes in and the heavens are like brass, as they say. 
and you're depressed or you're sad or you're heartbroken or you're afraid. And that's the moment when you got to decide, did God really say or did he not? Especially when it's something you really, really want or don't want. It's one thing to just not care. I can trust God. Everybody can. Because you don't care about it. But what about when it's something you really need? Or you really don't, something you really, really don't want to go through? Then it's hard. And it's amazing how that serpent just winds his way around your ankle in those moments. He seems to not be in the picture at all when it's daytime. But when the darkness comes in, suddenly you find him wrapped around your ankle, whispering to you, did God really say? And maybe you have the confidence to say, yes, he did, serpent. And she says, okay, well, you sure that's really even true? Maybe he's holding out on you. But between the Bible in our hands and the Holy Spirit in our hearts, we are so often instructed to obey God in some way that makes us afraid and uncomfortable. I would say if you're never afraid and uncomfortable by what God pushes you to do, then you're not following God. If you've never disagreed with him about something, if you've never read your Bible and been like, I don't like that, that is is offensive to me, then... You're not reading the Bible the right way. What, what God, do you, do you serve a God that's like a human and that thinks like you? Maybe you somehow have become so sanctified that God, nothing God does or says surprises you or hurts your feelings or makes you uncomfortable, but I don't think that's normal. God is not like us, therefore he is going to rub us the wrong way and obeying him is almost always going to make you uncomfortable and insecure and afraid and worried. It's one of the signs that you're on the right path is you got lots of anxiety and worry about what's going to happen because now you've got some faith going on. You're stepping out into something, right? You're not just, you're not just being safe because God, doesn't, God isn't safe and he doesn't lead us into safe places. He leads us into the dangerous, risky places. And so you're never feeling that, that sense of disturbance in your soul, then maybe you're just not listening. In that moment, the temptation is to listen to the wrong voice. The voice that makes us feel safe, more comfortable, less anxious, more in control, and happier is usually the wrong voice. Which choice makes me feel happier? Whichever one makes you feel happier is likely the dangerous one. This is what we see here in both of these stories. That that voice that leads you into comfort and happiness and ease and safety is usually the voice of the serpent. It's the voice of Jeroboam calling his people to bow down and worship the golden calves, saying, Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. That blasphemous, blasphemous phrase. Take things into your own hands. Find some other way to find security other than God. 
find some way to avoid the difficulty and the stress of obeying God and going into uncomfortable places, doing uncomfortable things, saying things that no one else is saying. Because the idols are always taking us into comfortable places. If that wasn't true, we wouldn't make them. <laughs> right? So the public ministry of Jesus, I think, is encouraging to me. It began with two important events, and this ties in really directly. First was his baptism by John the Baptist, and the second thing was that the Holy Spirit led Jesus into the desert to be tempted. And I love that it says that the Holy Spirit led him out there into the desert. This is just indicative of what I just said. The Holy Spirit didn't lead Jesus first into notoriety. He led him into the desert to be tempted. And these temptations from Satan were based all on the same God did God really say lie. All of them were. And there's one in particular that stands out to me that I want to point out in Matthew chapter 4 because it connects directly with this story. Matthew 4, 8 through 11. This is the last temptation before Satan gives up and leaves him alone. He says, verse 8, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Jesus is offered essentially the same temptation as all these other kings. I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world, all their glory, all the riches, all the fame, all the honor, all the power, all of it can be yours. And Jesus had been promised by the Father a different kingdom. And Jesus is bringing in a different kingdom, and he's a different kind of king, mostly in the fact that he's righteous. And where all the other kings chose their own power, their own glory, and they bow literally, in their case, bow down and worship other gods. They worshiped the serpent. Jesus says, no, no, no. I worship God and God alone. And he passes the test, but all of them failed to pass. He would only worship God. And you see this played out in the darkest place for Jesus, which is in the Garden of Gethsemane. You ever wonder if it was me in the Garden of Gethsemane? I would have thought back to this moment. Thought, man, Satan offered me all of that, and I gotta pick up this cup of wrath and drink it. Maybe I'm getting the raw end of the deal. I hope I would pass that test, but I don't think I would because I have failed it repeatedly in my life over and over and over again. That when the serpent comes along and says, Hey, maybe just lay here and have a snack and a nap, and enjoy your life when the Spirit is calling me to do else, else to go and do something else. So often I've chosen the opposite. But my hope is that because Jesus passed the test and the Spirit of Christ lives within me, dwells within me, and he is the one that is constantly transforming me and pestering me and driving me to obey instead of ignore 
to trust the goodness of God in the dark places just like I did in the light. And it's the Spirit of Christ in me who has already passed the test, and he draws me into those places over and over and over again. It's why when I get it right, I can't take credit. Because I have proven that me on my own does not get it right. Me with the Spirit gets it right sometimes, and increasingly more and more I get it right. And every time you sort of, I feel like I fall into blessing sometimes. You ever feel that way? When that happens, it's just the Spirit of Christ obeying God through you. Right place, right time, doing the right thing, saying the right thing. How does that ever happen? The Holy Spirit. So that's what I'd like to do is pray for us this morning. Why don't we stand up? What we never want to do with these kinds of stories is just, one, just say, oh, what dummies, and move on. It's also not quite there to say, what dummies, I should not be like them, because by this time tomorrow, you will have been, right? The, the last step is to throw ourselves at the feet of Jesus and ask the Spirit to move through us and make us more like Christ. Who, all, who never fell into this temptation one time. Amen. So that's where I want us to pray right now. Lord Jesus, thank you for standing on that mountaintop, being faced with the same temptation that we are faced with every day, which is death. That tempting question of, did God really say God, especially when that question comes in the dark and dry places. It's so tempting and so alluring to our souls to reach out and take comfort from the wrong place, from the wrong God. Because first of all, God, we repent for, for doing that. For not trusting your word, not trusting your character, not trusting your goodness and your faithfulness to your promises. God, forgive us for reaching out and <clears throat> constructing idols of sometimes very good things. Giving our devotion and our heart and our loyalty to those things above you. God, forgive us for listening to the, the counsel of the world and taking it in and living according to things that are not true. would you just forgive us and wash us clean from every one of those moments right now. So God, we stand here and we ask you by your spirit would you fill us and direct us and lead us. Jesus, as your prayer says, lead us not into temptation but deliver us from the evil one. For thine is the kingdom power and the glory forever. God, let those words be true of us. God, would you protect us? Would you shut out the voice of the enemy? Whether it's in the light or in the dark. God, we will have eyes only for you, that our hearts will be given to you and you alone. God, if there's any 
idolatrous thing in our life, whether it's a physical object or, or some kind of dream or passion or zeal or goal that is not from you, God, or that we have or might be from you, but we've elevated it to a place it shouldn't be in our hearts. God, would you bring it down to the right place? Lord, would you ascend the throne of our hearts? God, we submit to you as Lord, as King over us right now. You are the only righteous King. You are the only one who rejected this lie, this accusation over and over and over again. You're the only one who beat the temptation. And so we ask you right now to fill us with your righteousness and your life right now.